Christchurch, New Malden, 29th of December 2019. Stephen Kurt speaking at the United Service. So I wonder how many of you gathered in church this morning on Christmas Day alongside enjoying all that wonderful food and drink, uh, alongside watching the Queen's speech, maybe, perhaps you did, perhaps you didn't, alongside the opening and giving of all those presents. I wonder how many of you here gathered here this morning on Christmas Day also played those ridiculous uh, family games that only really get played at Christmas time. Put up your hand if you were involved in plenty, playing any games on Christmas Day. Yeah, quite a few of you. It's obviously going a bit out of fashion. Uh, but those weird and wonderful games that families and friends often play at Christmas. Now, some people love them. Some people tolerate them. Uh, but basically, uh, for a lot of people, games on Christmas Day are part of what Christmas is all about. And so on this Sunday, when you only really get the creme de la creme coming to church, you know, the really committed people tend to be here on the Sunday after Christmas, I thought we'd play a game together, and it's going to be called this. So let's have the title up there. How well do you know the Christmas story? Okay? And the answer is that you gather together with people around you, even if you don't know them from Adam, you gather around, you make a little team with those around you, and you see if you can win this morning, okay? And there are 40 points available, okay? It's going to rely heavily on your honesty in the way that you score uh, yourselves, but we'll see how you get on. But before we start, it is good to reflect on that word, no. So there's the word no up there. If you just press it again, Helen. Okay, the word no, and reflect on what that word means. Because we often use the word no in terms of information, don't we? We say we know London is the capital of the country or something like that. But actually, the most valuable use of the word no is actually relational. So when we know someone really well, we don't mean that we know loads of information about them. We mean we know about their character, don't we? And that's the most important type of knowledge when we really know what someone is like rather than simply knowing lots of factual information about them. That's the most important form of knowledge, and the same applies to Christianity. So we can actually know quite a lot of facts and details about the Bible without necessarily knowing God deeply in a personal relationship. So as we have this quiz on the Christmas story this morning, it's important to keep that in mind. And that's why some of the questions, the ones with uh, lower marks available, will be about factual information and the questions with more marks available, which is going to be a lot more difficult to judge, you're going to have to judge how you do yourself, are the ones that push us a little bit further on actually our personal knowledge of God through all of this. Okay? So I hope you're not too nervous this morning. Uh, fingers on buzzers. No, you're going to basically do, approach these questions with those around you. Okay, so first of all, a question about Joseph. Okay, there he is, Joseph in the Christmas story. We know about Joseph, don't we? Joseph who gets married uh, to Mary and uh, is the sort of main bloke in many ways uh, in the early part, certainly, of the Christmas story. Now, here is the question coming up, okay? What word, don't you shout this out, okay? You've got to sort of confer with your team. What word, beginning with R, does Matthew's Gospel use to describe Joseph? Now, if you choose to pick out the Bible and uh, look in Matthew chapter 2, then there's only one point available. I'm relying on your honesty here. If you're able to get the answer without looking in the Bible, you'll get the two points. So turn with those around you and have a guess 
at what this is, okay? Children and grown-ups, okay, you've got to work together on this. What word, beginning with R, does Matthew's Gospel use to describe Joseph, okay? I'll come around and ask questions in a minute, okay? I've got to give people enough time to work it out. Okay, I might come to you in a minute, Stanley. Okay. So, and musicians, you've got to do this as well. You're a very effective. You've got Charlie May, so you'll be fine. Okay. Right. Okay. Becky, you can't plead ill health and opt out. You've got to be doing this with Andrew. Right. Okay. So, I'm going to come to Stanley Moyes, who really knows his stuff when it comes to the Bible, uh, on this, and uh, ask uh, for an answer to this question. So, Stanley, what word, beginning with R, does Matthew's Gospel used to describe Joseph? Amazing, righteous, and that's it, well, yes. Okay, now, honesty time. How many of you got it right? Hands up. How many of you got it right without using the Bible? Oh, well, well done, excellent. Okay, so I'm relying entirely on your honesty here. Okay, be adding up your points. If you got that, then you get two marks. If you got it with the use of the Bible, you get one mark, okay? Now, next question, okay? question. Oh, sorry, there is the example of it, by the way. And actually, I must admit, when I was a kid, this used to really trouble me. Every Christmas, I'd hear this read, and it puzzled me a lot, because I thought, you know, it talks about Mary being pledged to marry to Joseph, and then she finds she's pregnant, because Joseph was a righteous man and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. And I do remember every year as a child at Christmas, being troubled by this and thinking, well, if Joseph was righteous, he should have stuck by her. What's all this business about uh, divorce? So it concerned me. But I think what it is trying to emphasize is that Joseph was determined uh, to do the right thing. But anyway, I mustn't give away uh, the next bit because here's the next question. What does the word righteous mean? Okay. Now, again, go into your groups. Okay. Um, you could read the entire Bible and try and find an answer for this, but that would be quite difficult. So, uh, have a go at this. Okay, what does the word righteous actually mean? It's one thing to know that that's the way Joseph is described. What does the word actually mean? Right, okay. Harder one, this. Perhaps I should have made more marks available. But any suggestions about what the word righteous means? Anyone want to uh, volunteer? Shirley? Uh, just to do the right thing. To do the right thing. That's a very good answer. Um, someone determined to do the right thing. I think that is a, a pretty good answer. Maybe it's worth one point or maybe two. I'm not quite sure. I'll leave it up to you. Any other suggestions, Roger? Uh, right with God. Yeah. Doing the right thing in terms of God as well. That's a, that's a good answer. Okay. Or being right with God. Um, right. Say again? Right by the rules. Right the by the rules. They're all sort of, uh, I'll give you the definition that I think um, the Bible perhaps would put on it, uh, which is this. A commitment to living in a covenant relationship. You see, righteousness is a relational term. And the Bible uses righteousness both of God and God's people. So when the Bible uses the term righteousness of God, which particularly does in the Psalms, but it does in other parts of the Bible as well, it's talking about God's commitment to putting the world right and uh, keeping his promises. And the Bible also uses the term righteousness about God's people as well. And when it uses it about God's people, it's about their commitment to their side of the bargain, living in relationship with God. 
This word covenant is a relational word, and it talks about God and his people having a relationship, and the word righteousness is used of that. So I think Joseph, when he's described as a righteous man, uh, is someone who is committed to doing the right thing, as been said, uh, is committed to sort of living within the love of God, but living in a covenant relationship with God would be the way I put it. Now, you've got to decide whether your answer gets one point or two points. If you think, well, I'm more or less saying that, give yourself two points. If you think, well, I was okay, give yourself one, okay? But be totting up how many points you get. Now, next question. Okay, this is harder, and therefore it gets six points, okay? More difficult question. What does the word righteous, therefore, in the light of our answer to the first two questions, what does the word righteous say to us about our role in the Christmas story? When we read that Joseph was a righteous man, when we understand that the term righteous is talking about our relationship with God, God's relationship with us, his commitment to us, the fact we need to be committed to him. What does all of that say to us about our role in the Christmas story? A harder question, there's no definitive answer. You'll have to give your own marks this because I can't sort of take in your papers and spend the rest of the afternoon marking them. But just go with the people next to you and think, you know, what will be your answer to that question? Okay, much more difficult. Turn around and chat with those around you. Don't be intimidated. Okay, any brave people want to volunteer an answer? The fact, what does the word righteous say to us about our role in the Christmas story? If Joseph was righteous, and that was an important part of the story, then sort of what has that got to say to us? Any suggestions? Nathan? The new covenant uh, and yep. making the world right with God through yep. kind of committing to I guess that so. today. Yep, that's a very thoughtful and helpful answer. We have a role to play would be a sort of simpler way of putting that really. Okay, uh, James, what are you going to say? Hold on, the mic will come to you. Type question time. Um, uh, responding to um, what we can learn from uh, the Christmas um, story. Yep. So. Yeah, but there's an important role for us in responding. Let's just put up what I would sort of summarize. There's a crucial for us in how we respond to it. At Christmas time, quite rightly, we focus on what God has done. Uh, it's a massive celebration of the fact that God has sent uh, Jesus for every single one of us. That's at the heart of the Christmas story. But this reference to Joseph being a righteous man uh, and trying to do the right thing does point us to the fact that our response is really quite vital. At Christmas time, we celebrate what God has done for us, but we can't just leave it there, or we shouldn't just leave it there if it moves us, if it speaks to us. We've got a role to play in response. Let's just have that picture of Joseph up there again. There he is. Now, Joseph didn't get it right when he originally thought that he should divorce Mary quietly. But he was still righteous because he was trying to do the right thing before God, wasn't he? Joseph uh, may have sort of been mistaken on that being the right thing to do, but at that point, he was still trying to do the right thing, and that's where the emphasis lies. And that shows us that God doesn't expect us to be perfect and to get everything right, but our response to uh, the Christmas story and our response to what God has done for us is nonetheless important. We're righteous before God when we're seeking to live in relationship with him. And when God in the Christmas story does speak to Joseph, which he does three times, 
each time Joseph is obedient to what God has said. Okay, so there's been 10 marks available so far. I don't know how many marks you give yourself for that last question, but just be honest, you know, in the quietness of your heart, think if I got one or two, maybe you give yourself a full six, you know. If you're having a tough year, it might give you the boost you need to award yourself six. Okay, on to our next uh, set of questions, okay? You could be thinking, how many, how many points will I give to the vicar as well? You could be thinking, maybe you only gave me a couple on that last one. But anyway, Mary, let's have a question about Mary. Okay, now this is a little bit tougher. Okay, again, you can if you feel the need. You can open Luke chapter 2 and get a bit of help from the Bible. Some of you are reaching for it already. But you'll only get one point if you do that. Which three Old Testament characters are either mentioned to Mary by the angel Gabriel or are mentioned by Mary when she sings the Magnificat, okay, her song of praise. There are three Old Testament characters that are either mentioned by Mary or to Mary. Okay, get in your groups and try and think who they might be. As I say, if you use the Bible, you only get half marks available. Sarah and Ross, you can work together. <laughs> How are you getting on over here? Any ideas? Anna knows her Bible back to front. Well, you're doing pretty well. Okay, two out of three, basically. Right, okay, Heather's reaching for the Bible. Shows it's a tough question. She's a vicar's daughter. They normally know their onions. <laughs> well, Joshua won on Christmas Day, so he's the star of the church. He carried off the chocolate for getting the 48 answer, didn't you? Yeah. Right, okay, let's see. Now, this group over here, okay, came up with what was a pretty good answer, okay? What was the answer you came up with? Go on, John. We said Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from over there. Good guess, good guess. Particularly because John was listening when I spoke about covenant earlier, you see, so he thought, yeah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Good answer. Okay, you've got the Bible open, so I'll come to you in a minute. Okay, anyone else got a suggestion? There's another Old Testament character who's pretty important when it comes to the town in which Jesus was born. David. Okay, so what are, who, what are the three characters? Well, David and Jacob, we haven't found the third one yet. Right, okay, here are the answers. Okay, David, Jacob, and Abraham. So when Gabe, well, let's have the verses up. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, the top bit is part of what Gabriel says to Mary. So Gabriel appears to Mary and says, the Lord God will give you the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, uh, which is another way of saying Israel, uh, forever. His kingdom will have no end. And then when Mary sings her song of praise, the Magnificat, Right at the end, or near the end, she says he has remembered his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. So these three figures from the Old Testament are all mentioned either to Mary or by Mary. So next question is this. Why are David, Jacob and Abraham, why are they at all relevant to the coming of Jesus? What on earth is the point of them being mentioned? Okay. You'll be wishing you'd stayed at home. I'm working you quite hard on the Sunday after Christmas, so turn around and uh, discuss that for a few minutes. Why are they mentioned? Two points available for this. What is the point 
of David, Jacob, and Abraham being mentioned. What have they got to do with anything? <laughs> you didn't think you get worked this hard, did you? Okay, there's some quite a good discussion going on. Okay, the Tuttons are deep in thought at the back of the church. Yeah, they're thinking about it. Right. Okay, well, I will give you, okay, what I think is the answer to this. Okay? And uh, basically, the reason why David and Jacob and Abraham, and it's interesting that they're used in reverse order, but they're all mentioned, is because what it's intending to show is that the coming of Jesus represented the fulfillment of the great story of God's project to rescue the world. So the whole of the story of the Bible is the story of God being determined to do something about a world that has gone badly wrong. And he calls Abraham and he makes promises to Abraham uh, that he will eventually bless the entire world through Abraham's family. Uh, Jacob is Abraham's grandson and he's told that he will be the father of the nation of Israel. And then later on, David comes, and God makes promises to David that he'll have an eternal dynasty, that his family will always reign over Israel and indeed the world. And uh, when the New Testament comes along, it's determined to show that all of that great story came to fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus wasn't a sort of standalone, which didn't really have anything to do with what had gone before. It was the fulfillment of this great story. So I don't know whether you feel that you deserve one mark or two marks on that. I'll leave that up to you, whether your answer sort of, you know, you can't have half marks, I'm afraid. So, uh, but it looks though quite a few of you got two or maybe one on that. Okay, next question. Most important one, therefore, with six marks. What does the fulfillment of this great story, this massive, great, big, sprawling story, the fact that it came to fulfillment, what does that show us about God? How perhaps can that encourage us? Okay, like most of these six-part questions, six-mark questions, quite difficult to actually say what the right answer is, but have a go. Just chat with the person next to you and think, well, what does that show us uh, about God? Those of you who aren't normally here, church isn't normally this hard work at Christ yet. I just thought Sunday after Christmas, with the elite here, you have to work them quite hard. Right, okay, so I will give you what I think might be an answer. Now, you might think, well, my answer is very different and I still deserve lots of marks. That is fine, because you are marking your own papers this morning. But here is the answer that I would give to this question. And I think it's a really powerful and helpful one for us, particularly if we're facing uncertainties and worries and anxieties in our life. God is in control, however things sometimes look, God is in control of the entire story of this world and every single sub-story that there's ever been in the history of this world finds its resolution in Jesus. And that's one of the most amazing things about the New Testament, that it takes all of these different stories, all of these different strands from thousands of years of God's history, and what it claims, amazingly and stupendously, is that all of these stories found their fulfillment in, or their resolution in the coming of Jesus. And that includes our own stories as well. So the stories of our life, the ups and the downs, the disappointments, the regrets, the joys, the wonderful times in our lives, the Bible makes the pretty staggering claim that all of these stories find their resolution, find their answer 
in the coming of Jesus. So take Mary, uh, this uh, young girl, who probably was pretty unsure about how her life was going to work out. And Mary receives this amazing revelation. Her role in the Christmas story is a really uh, important one. And Mary is led to realize that her story, the story of her life, finds its resolution in the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's what's held out to all of us at Christmas time as well. And perhaps that's where our knowledge goes from head to heart. But Christmas time, uh, particularly in carols by candlelight services or children's carol services, we see the Christmas story told and we normally enjoy hearing it and perhaps it moves us. But it's where we suddenly realize that actually our story is placed within the bigger story of God's love for the world that quite often it starts to then transform us. Okay, third question. Say four, so don't worry. Uh, a question about the shepherds or set of questions. Okay, and the question is this. When the angels appear to the shepherds, how many times do we hear mention of the word glory? Okay, now... Yeah, this is a guess that you can make. If you need the Bible to help you, again, you can only get one mark, okay? So just talk to the people beside you. How many times does the word glory or variations on the word glory appear when the angels come to the shepherds? Have a go at that. Okay, have a guess or a look, okay? I might ask people because you won't. How many times do you reckon, Rods? Josh thinks five, okay. Anyone else get any ideas? Sarah, what do you reckon? Um, well, Heather said three. You're going by, you know, if a vicar's daughter says it, you know. Okay, do you want to just turn the mic up, uh, Nikki? Is that okay? Uh, anyone else got any guess, Steve? Birthday boy, what are you guessing? Uh, well, I guessed three, but I had a suspicion it might be zero. <laughs> right, now, you thought I was making nasty trick questions. And you'd be wrong if you thought that, because the answer is three times. Okay, so that, oh, oh, you're okay over there. Okay, let's have the three, uh, the three ones up there. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around. Uh, we're told a great company of the heavenly host appeared, saying, glory to God in the highest. And then, crucially, at the end of the story, the shepherds, when they return, they return. They've been so transformed by this that they re return glorifying and praising God. So three times. Okay, next question. What does the word glory mean? Turn to those difficult, uh, some of these questions. Sometimes we get used to words like this. We don't always reflect on what they mean. Turn to those around you and ask, what do you think the word glory means? My grandmother used to say it when anything terrible happened. She'd go, oh, glory. But I don't think it means a terrible thing has happened. Okay, so chat with those around. Not the easiest question. Don't feel silly if you haven't got an immediate answer. Because very often in church we use language, but we, uh, we don't ask what it means. Okay, any suggestions about what word glory means? Any suggestions at all? Don't feel foolish. Any, oh, Katie Lofman. Lay, lay reader here at Christchurch and never gets anything wrong. <laughs> we think it's a kind of radiance that makes people want to worship God. 
A radiance that wants to make a pretty good answer, isn't it? A radiance that makes people want to worship God. I think there's a lot in that answer. I think it's uh, fantastic. Any other suggestions? Well, I think that what's just been said is definitely true, but I think perhaps this will be uh, the best definition what's coming up now. The presence of God made clear or manifest. So the Bible talks about God being present the whole time, but sometimes God's present, it, presence is particularly clear. It's particularly made manifest. It's particularly made obvious. And uh, when the Bible talks about that, it uses the word about God's glory. Okay, next question. What does the word glory, the fact that in the Christmas story it's used in connection with the shepherds and the baby in the manger, what does that tell us about God? The fact that the Bible talks three times about glory in precisely the same passage where the shepherds occur and where the whole thing is about the baby Jesus in the manger being assigned to them, what does that tell us about God? A more difficult question, that's why it's got six marks. Go into your groups. Not the easiest question. So if you think you're having to work hard this morning, that's because I feel, why should our children just have to work hard at school and adults not have to? Do you agree with that, Joshua? <laughs> okay. Well, we mustn't be here all day. So this is what I'm suggesting might be an answer. What's going to come up now? And it's this. And I believe this is one of the main things that Luke wants to say to us in his version of the Christmas story. And maybe your answer was similar to this, maybe it was identical. Or maybe you said something equally valid that will give you your six points. God's presence is never more clearly shown, never more clearly made manifest, than in the humility of the shepherds and the baby in the manger. I think that's one of the major points, perhaps the major point, that Luke, in his Gospel, wants to make clear. You see, we can think that glory would be a great, big, powerful, majestic king in a massive robe with a great army behind him and loads of people bowing down. We might think that that would be the most glorious picture to have of the rescuer that God sent. But instead, it's these pictures here. Let's have them up here. A baby in a manger surrounded by just about the most lowly people that existed, shepherds. And we're told, as I said a moment ago, that those shepherds went away glorifying God. And we never witness more powerfully to the God of Christmas than when we point people to the lowliness and the humility with which God was prepared to come in order to rescue and save his people. That picture is a rather wonderful thing, uh, picture because you've got the shining presence of God there surrounded completely by lowliness. You've got a little sheep, you've got shepherds, you've got a child, uh, you've got uh, the manger, and it's all very, very lowly. And the Bible says, actually, that is the way in which the presence of God, the glory of God, is made most clear. Okay, lastly, question about the wise men. Okay, or set of questions about the wise men. Okay, another numerical question. How many times is the word worship used in the story of the wise men. When the wise men appear in Matthew chapter 2, so you can look at the Bible if you want a bit of help, how many times does the word worship occur?
Okay. Any ideas? I'm, I'm going to come to uh, Annabelle, actually, here for a guess. What number do you reckon? How many times do you reckon? Uh, five. Annabelle's guessed five. Okay. What do other people think? Let's come to the Tuttons. Yep. I think two. 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 Actually, Stanley? Zero. Zero. You're thinking a trick question. Okay, I'm going to go to the back of the church. Right, how many? Four. Four. Actually, none of you are right. I'm afraid the answer is three. Three times. How many of you got that without the Bible? How many of you got it with the Bible? Well, well done. Excellent. Okay, yeah, there are lots of threes, actually. Maybe that's one of the things you're going to remember from this Sunday. There are loads of threes in the Christmas story. Next, and there they are. Yeah, we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Herod says, as soon as you find him, report to me, so I too may go and worship him. He didn't really intend to do that, did he? And then on coming to the house, they saw the child, they bowed down and worshipped him. Okay, three references to that in the story of the wise men, like the three references to glory in Luke's account of the shepherds. The question that then has to follow is this one. What does the word worship mean? Turn to those around you and ask that question. Okay, time's getting on, so I'll give you an answer to that. Okay, and this is the answer. Giving, well, the word worship is when you give someone their due. In the context of worship of God, it's giving God what is due to him. Acknowledging uh, what is due uh, to God. And uh, next question, last one. What is this emphasis upon outsiders? The wise men weren't members of Israel. They came from the east. Outsiders being drawn to worship God in Jesus Christ. What does that have to say to us this Christmas? The fact that a crucial part of the Christmas story is these outsiders. They are no part of, or seemingly, no part of that great story of Abraham, Jacob, and David. They wouldn't have thought, and no, particularly the people of Israel wouldn't have thought they were really any part of that big story. But the fact that they're drawn to worship God and the word is emphasized three times. What does that have to say to us this Christmas? This part of the story about outsiders being drawn to worship God. Just discuss that for the last time for a couple of minutes. Okay. Right, well here is what. I would give as the answer. Perhaps uh, you are saying something similar, perhaps something different. That the God revealed in Jesus Christ is truly for everyone. That's a really vital part of uh, the Christmas story. And it's a reminder to us this Christmas time in 2020 that our task as God's people, overwhelmingly, if we regard ourselves as part of God's people, then the way that we show that we're righteous, the way that we show that we're trying to live in relationship with God is overwhelmingly when we make it clear to as many people as possible that the God who came in Jesus Christ is for everyone. And the way we do that is in a number of ways. Partly it's by trying to live righteous lives, like Joseph, let's have his picture up there, to demonstrate that we're living in a covenant relationship with God. We do this by being a bit like Mary and witnessing to the truth 
that the great story of the world and all of the sub-stories within it, including our own, find their fulfillment, find their resolution in the coming of Jesus Christ. We uh, respond to it by understanding and witnessing as the shepherds did. Let's have them up there. To God's glory being revealed to its fullest extent in the baby in the manger or the animal feeding trough. And we do it by witnessing with the wise men that everyone, without exception, is included within this call to worship the God revealed in Jesus Christ. So Christmas is a really important time for making sure that we really know the Christmas story. Let's have that title up again. How well do we know the Christmas story? It's one thing to know facts about it. Generally, if we've got a lot of background in church, we'll know more about how many numbers of times such and such occurred. But that's actually not the most important thing. The most important thing is to know the Christmas story in a relational sense. Because the truth at the heart of Christmas and the very thing we've been celebrating over the last few days is that God loved every single one of us so much and God loved everyone in this world so much that he sent Jesus Christ for every single one of us. And when we really know the Christmas story is when we start or continue in that relationship with God where we really know that God's love is personally for us and where we're determined with all our faults and with all the things that we get wrong where we're really determined to carry on walking with God and responding to his love for us so I hope you have a wonderful rest of your Christmas time